Welcome to Soundbreaker. I'm your host, Bob Shammy, and we are about to break the silence. Join me as we go behind the scenes and meet some of the most influential names in the music industry. Get ready for remarkable success stories that break the norms and defy the odds. From dreams to success, from challenges to victory, an exclusive backstage pass into the lives of music trailblazers as they create their own path to success. This is Soundbreaker. Welcome to Soundbreaker. In today's episode, we're talking to Josh Katz, who is a groundbreaker in the music industry. Thanks for joining us. Uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with you, uh, Josh, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So uh, I am currently the founder of a company called Yellowheart. Uh, Yellowheart um, has a few different lines of business. We do um, Web3-based music products. We have a Web3-based ticketing platform, and we're also building uh, communities within the entertainment and sports space. Fantastic. I mean, I don't want to get into it in the beginning, but definitely I want to, I want to more elaborate on the Web3 and all of that. But we'll get, we'll get to it later on in the, in, in the interview. Um, how, did you get, how do you get started in the music industry? So I started it really as a kid. You know, I was super into music. Uh, you know, grew up in Long Island, would get on the train, go to New York City, go to any concert I can, sneak into any club I can, and just kind of was always super passionate about it. Grew up in a household where my father was a guitar collector. So we had loads of guitars and banjos and stringed instruments in every room. Always had great players over, playing music in the house. So um have just always been it's been in my blood, really, since since so I was you've been kid. always surrounded and fed music when you were a kid yeah, yeah. And, and i was you know, passionate about it too i i actually really loved it you know i love these stories you know i always like to go back to understand how somebody got started in this industry and you know it's not easy to get started but i love the typical stories like you know i snuck into the clubs i yeah. you know worked my way into a, a concert and all of that it's amazing um you mentioned in your, uh, you had a Rolling Stone interview, uh, which is pretty impressive. And you mentioned that you work with Clive Davis as an assistant at Arista Records back in the day. Uh, can you tell us a funny story or fun story uh, from your early days working I at mean, Arista? There were a lot. So I, I want to put this in perspective, okay? So this is me right out of college. Um, How old were you? I was 22. Wow. And I was his third assistant. So he had his uh, longtime assistant, Rose, had been with him 40-plus years. She yeah. home at 5 o'clock. He had a second assistant, Tom, uh, who would roll in, and I was the third assistant. Basically, the uh, barely paid intern. Uh, go I, for best, I uh, bet, the, not to interrupt you, the third assistant, always the first one come in. First to Probably. come in, last to leave, worked with him every Saturday, every Sunday. Yeah. I used to have to wait until he came back from dinner every night. So he'd leave maybe seven, eight o'clock, go to a show, then go to dinner, sometimes come back to the office, sometimes not. But either way, I had to wait until we knew if he was coming back or not. So I'd be in the office till 1 or 2 a.m. most days. Wow. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, listen, when you're in that kind of environment, this was back really before everyone had a cell phone in their hands and things were word of mouth and passing notes and a different time. So, you know, I got to see a lot. So I'll tell you two interesting experiences I had with him. The first please, one please. was I spent a weekend with him uh, where he was working on some music and he had Elton John up. 
And I basically spent the entire day just looking after him and Elton John, which was actually pretty cool for a 22-year-old kid. I mean, Elton John's an icon. So, uh, but to oh, kind yes. of be in this small environment with him, just kind of getting water. Wait a second. Did Clive also produce? Is that what you're saying? He was producing records well, or just there as, did, as the label executive owner? Okay, I don't he think did he everything. was turning knobs, but he was definitely paying for recordings. I don't remember what the project was with Elton, but um, he was working with Elton. He was hands-on, you're saying? Yeah, very hands-on. Wow. Wow. And then the next experience I had, because I worked with him on the weekends, was I was manning his office when Biggie got shot and Biggie was on the label. Wow. And wow. it was pretty insane. Uh, you know, and I learned about it literally by answering the phone and it was a reporter looking for a comment uh, early in the morning. And then just it was one hell of a day. I'll tell you that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, he seemed inc incredibly also dedicated for a successful oh record label owner. I mean, always in the office from what he's saying, always on top of his thing. Always working, always working. And, you know, the interesting thing is that when he come back at night, yeah. he come back at night to listen to music. So he'd come back after a dinner or a showcase or wherever he was, and he'd be in his office with the music on 10, just blasting whatever it might have been that he was working on because he'd say, he's like, listen, you know, I get interrupted all day long. This is my time where I could just focus on the music. So he'd sit wow. in the office for hours on end, you know, yelling out to me, bring me the new Whitney Houston remix or bring me this or that, and I'd bring it on a CD, and he'd put it on, and it would be on 10 and sit there with his eyes closed, you know, listening to the same song over and over. Amazing. Yeah. Well, this is a fact that a lot of people think it's all fun and games, but a lot of hard work and dedication in the music industry. Yeah, super yes. hard work. I mean, it's a very disposable industry. You're either, you know, he's one of the yes. few guys that's remained relevant for decades. Um, yes. You know, a lot of people get relevant for a couple of months at a time and they yeah. fall off. No one remembers them. Maybe they get hot again a few years later. But that's it. You know, it's very difficult to remain relevant for years on end. Interesting. Interesting. Um, uh, you know, the transition from CD or physical era to digital era uh, for some people is a nightmare. And I was one of them, I admit, in the beginning. It's like, what to do? Where to go? Who do you send? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It was like, like somebody throw me somewhere. And like, <laughs> I don't speak the language. And for some, it was a lottery ticket. Like, wow, this is where we're going to make money. Uh, where were you when that transition happened? As far as where were you? What, in what uh, era, or should I say, what stage in your business in the music industry were you? And yeah. how did you adapt to it? So it's interesting because I had, been, I had been in the traditional music business, the record labels. I left and worked in management for a guy named Jim Guerno. He had, at the time, he was managing No Doubt. It was Gwen Stefani, um, Beck, Offspring, Chris Cornell, who unfortunately passed. A lot of big rock bands out of Orange County. Um, and I kind of saw that start to happen. Yeah. And when it happened, I left the music business. And I said, wow, for the first time ever, there's not a monopoly on shelf space. Where previously, yes. if you wanted to put out an album, you needed to you know, have access to shelf space. And it was monopolized and owned by, at the time, it was five or six major record labels. Correct. And I thought for the first time, well, now it's going to go to file sharing or streaming. And now it's the wide open. And anyone could make money and put out music and do well. So I left the music business right when that happened. Wow. You left the music business. I left the traditional music business. I'll tell you what yeah. actually happened was, um, you know, with Jim, you know, the management company was called Rebel Waltz. And he also had a record label actually with Arista called Time Bomb. 
Time yeah. Bomb, you know, and I, I, I kind of was the representative for Time Bomb in New York um, at Arista, where I was very familiar and I knew everybody. Yeah. And the whole point of that record label was to create rock music, which Clyde never had. Uh, he figured Jim would bring him the next big rock star, which never really happened. Um, but I got to go to the Arista meetings. Um, and when I was in these at meetings at BMG and Arista, all these older executives kept talking about how they have to kill file sharing to save the CD. And yes. for me, being young at the time, I kind of thought that that was suicide. I go, wow, right now, you know, plus BMG had just acquired Napster. And I was yeah. like, why don't you guys just put up some gates and start charging a couple of cents and we'll build it. And no one wanted to hear it. They wanted to kill this thing right away and save the CD, which was making them tons of money. And I just said, oh, these guys are going to die a slow death. It's a shame, but I'm out of here. And I left. Wow. Interesting. Really interesting. Um Jump into the future. Um, you work with Yellow Hearts. Obviously, yep. that's your latest endeavor and your new uh, project that you've been at it for some years, uh, which has led to Kings of the uh, Kings of Lions NFTs, which has generated oh, yeah. over two million dollars. Congrats on that! Um, how did the blockchain and NFTs, I would say, uh, you know, uh, or how do you see the blockchain and NFT in the music uh, evolving or in the music industry? Like, how is the you whole know, thing kind of together? I'm trying to put the question together because I don't understand all of it. So maybe you yeah. can help us. Yeah. Well, you know, once again, we're dealing with history repeating itself. We have an industry yeah. that took yeah. almost two decades to adopt the streaming. Now the record industry has become a very, very simple game where yeah. there's a certain amount of revenue thrown off from Spotify, Apple, and any other streamers every year. Correct. Um, and Correct. the whole goal is to just get as much market share of that as you can. And that's it. Yes. Uh, so yeah. now these labels have adopted. The, the staffs have gotten much smaller. They're basically marketing hit artists. They're not really developing artists. Um, but they're just going after market share. They just want as much of that money as possible. Yeah. So they're not looking to adopt this new technology. What this new technology does is it allows for a file to go out to people who play it, whether it's Spotify, Apple, any player, and it allows okay. for the royalties to be pre-programmed into the file to say that I own this amount of writer share, this amount of publisher share, this amount of master. And yeah. it can automatically pay all of those participants upon being played. So what it does is it cuts out all the middlemen that have been rent-seeking on musicians and entertainers for years. And it allows for direct payments on, on as they happen to those um, you know, performers. So it's super revolutionary in the way that it really will look out for artists and make sure they're paid, give them full transparency into their royalties, into their plays, into their money. Plus, make it so they don't have to wait for their money and they don't have anyone's hands in their pockets anymore. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Really, very interesting. Um, I mean, you successfully navigated through various uh, transitions throughout your career, uh, from a record label and becoming a tech, you know, entrepreneur into the tech business. In your opinion, uh, you know, what's the key to stay relevant uh, in the business, especially tech those days where there's tech yeah. involved and all of that? The tech part is, it, well, I'll tell you, the key to staying relevant is to just keep moving. You know, you got to just keep moving forward every day. You wake up and you just keep going forward. You don't stand still. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a business that, you know, you have to be active in. If you stand still, you're kind of dead instantly. The tech thing is something totally different because 
tech is something that you actually have to understand and be passionate about pushing it forward. I got mm -hmm. lucky where, um, you know, when I sold our last company, I was just super into blockchain. I learned about this and we mm -hmm. were paying a lot of royalties at that company and it was just a pain in the butt. I mean, I was constantly figuring out who pays who and who pays what. And, you know, it's just like it's a and no one's ever satisfied. So when I learned about this technology and the fact that yeah. the auto auto splits, I was like, this is incredible. This is really what it's all about. And I went on a mission to basically create what I thought would be the next format. Yes. Great. This is great. Um you know, we're going to go back again to Yellow Hearts and the blockchain and how did Yellow Heart integrate NFTs into the ticketing? Can you explain that for us? Yeah, yeah because now you also added the ticketing thing to it. We did. We, we launched an entire ticketing product. So yeah. let me explain it like this. It's not even about NFTs. It's about what's called Web3. So Web3 encompasses a few different technologies. It has NFTs, uh, which are a type of file. It has the blockchain. Um, it has the metaverse um, and a few other areas. So what we did is we built a ticketing platform that encompasses all of these technologies. And to start with the blockchain, what happens is when something goes on a blockchain, it's basically a public database, the database that everyone could see. So if I put some information on that database, you could see it. Every person could see it. So mm -hmm. right now, the ticketing industry suffers from all types of bad actors, all types of fraud, all types of people, you know, trying to sell tickets um, for inflated prices. There's what's called speculative ticketing, where yeah. prices are, people don't even own the ticket, but they put it up on a secondary for some astronomical price, hope that someone buys it. Um, and if they do, great, I'll figure out how to get it for less and I'll make the spread. But I don't even own it. So now, if a ticket is issued on a blockchain, there could only be one owner of the ticket, it's clear who owns it. It's clear what they paid. It's the next person is clear what they paid. And it basically creates what's called a chain of custody. So now there's full transparency into how many tickets exist, who issued them, where's the money flowing. The next part of that is something called smart contracts. So you use these smart contracts to issue these tickets. When you issue these tickets, you basically pre-program the same way we do with the music into the ticket what the splits are. So when a ticket gets sold the first time, we could say, okay, give 90% to the artist, give 5% to the promoter, 5% to the venue, and, and so on. Where it gets interesting, though, is we could also pre-program the secondary sale. So we could wow. say, okay, if it gets sold the second time on a secondary, automatically send 20% back to the artist and 10% back to the promoter and give the fans 70%. And it's locked in. There's not much they could do about it. It's all transparent. So the fan knows what they're getting into. And it actually pays the artist once again, as the transaction happens, it doesn't have to go to some third party who then, you know, some accounting, um, you know, mechanism, it pays on demand on the blockchain. The blockchain has what's called a wallet system. So you could set up what's called a wallet, um, you know, a blockchain wallet and have your funds flow directly to your wallet. So if you and I are putting out tickets and you're getting 50% and I'm getting 50%, immediately when it sells, the money flows to our individual wallets, not to a third party that then has to divvy it up and take a fee for doing so. Well, so let me ask you something. So what are you saying basically that Yellow Hearts makes the deal with, let's say, Live Nations? And and there's a concert coming up for whoever, 
uh, let's say, uh, you know, uh, any artist, any popular artist right now, and let's say Taylor Swift. So basically, the tickets will be bought through Yellow Hearts or they'll buy them through Live Nation or other ticketing. And then they can, if they want to resell their ticket, they could do it through Yellow Hearts. Well, the way that it works is our technology actually works as a what's called a white label or an API with other companies. So Uh they don't need us other than to put our technology in place. And when they issue the ticket, it's issued on through our technology on a, what's called a public blockchain. We don't so you have that. a pre-deal set up already. So all of that appears. Yeah, with all uh-huh. of the, the third-party companies are able to use our software and just basically issue these tickets on the blockchain and then manage it themselves. Great. So that's pretty much really, Josh, eliminates the old days back in New York. I remember when I used to walk by, uh, you know, Madison Square Garden, the peddling of tickets, you know, oh, a bunch yeah. of guys I mean, selling, that's... yes. You know, what are they fake of- or real, but inflating prices, as you said. So pretty much eliminates all that bootleg and all that nonsense. Yeah. So, so here's somebody thing. would profit from that increase. Yeah, exactly. So imagine that you were selling eggs, right? And I bought up yeah. all the eggs and I own them all now. And I, you sold them for a dollar, but now I'm selling them for $10. Yes. You'd be like, what the hell? In this case, that $9, a portion of it flows back to you every time I make a sale. This is great. This, so everybody makes money. Artist makes more case. money, the team makes yes. more money, and these scalpers who came in yes. and basically have been ripping off fans are now yes. identified on a public ledger. Um, they could either be incentivized to help mitigate risk or just yeah. eliminated. Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Okay. Thanks for the info, buddy. Really. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell you, there's to... one more part to it. The other part is please. the NFL. Yes, that's what we're here for. Uh, absolutely, part. please. That's where it yes. gets fun. So, yeah. you know, an NFT, um, which I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but probably have a bad taste in their mouth over a lot of these profile collections that came out in the last couple of years, yes. a lot of the Ponzi schemes going on, a yes. lot of bad actors in the space, which absolutely happened. Luckily, it kind of died. But what it does is right now, a ticket used to be a ticket stub. It used to be a piece of paper. Um, then it moved to basically a QR code, and that's it. It's a code on your phone. You scan it, and it dies. Yeah. We've brought back the ticket stub with the actual NFT. So imagine a ticket that interacts with you. That huh. pre-show asks you, oh, you're a VIP. Do you want parking? Can we get you a drink? Um, you know, Then you enter the show. It knows you entered the show and says, oh, after the show, do you want to go to a nightclub? Here's a free pass. Here's a first round of drinks on a sponsor. Um, and wow. then continues engaging with you through the show and then after the show as well. So now you bought that ticket for Taylor Swift. It's an NFT. We know that you used it. We know that you checked it in. So now the next show comes up for Taylor Swift. That ticket is your entry to get in line ahead of other people because we know you're a verified fan who went to a show. It's on the public ledger so the whole world knows it. We know that they can see for themselves that nobody's cheating anyone. And now you become a preferred fan. Now you've gone to eight Taylor Swift shows. You jump even further ahead in the line of priority because you become a super fan. And this all is public for everyone to see. Wow, amazing. And you came up with all of that yourself? I mean, this is yeah. pretty fascinating. Yeah, I spent, and, I spent and, a lot of years really going deep on this. Um, you know, in 2018, it. I got funded by Live Nation. And I went forward and they gave me the funding to basically materialize all this. I worked closely at the time um, with a guy named Jared Smith, who was running Ticketmaster. Um, we did it in yeah. stealth. Um, but we went deep on kind of, hey, 
what's keeping you up at night? You're running this huge ticketing organization. What are the headaches that hurt that are killing you right now? And we were able to solve some of them. Some of them we were not. Um, but you know, I was I had the luxury of getting good funding and to be left alone for a number of years to really get deep on this and bring super smart people. I'm by far the least smart on the team. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But this is incredible. And so you would say, so is it okay to say that Life Nation is one of your investors? Early yeah, they investors. are an investor, yes. Great, great. Ticketmasters too, only just this yeah, gentleman all, used? Oh. It's the same company. Oh, well, they bought them. That's right, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, amazing. There's definitely a lot of information, a lot of insights that, uh, you know, I didn't even know. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find it very beneficial. Um, you had obviously an incredible journey so far, uh, Josh. And the music industry known for its challenges and setbacks. And can you share um, a difficult moment that you faced in your career uh, that you have, and how did you overcome it? Oh my God. So with Yellowheart, you know, we were ready to launch in, in Q2 of 20 and the pandemic basically put us out of business. Um, Live Nation cut all funding to the company. Tickets yeah. went away for 18 months, and all of a sudden, no one really cared about this cool new ticketing technology. So I was out of business for a pretty long time where I had to uh -huh. decide, okay, am I going to weather the storm? Am I going to go out of my own pocket and fund this and keep people employed and keep this going? Or am I going to let my dream die and let it go away? And instead, I spent all of COVID basically working twice as hard. Um, trying to raise money without success. I was not able to raise capital because people are like, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. When ticketing comes back, we'll love to talk to you. But, like, you know, no one knew when it was coming back. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned early when we first started Kings of Leon. So that was yes. kind of one of the breakthrough moments where I spent most of the pandemic in 20 really just calling every artist I knew. And I, luckily, I know a lot of artists. And I was trying to get some of them to understand why this technology made sense for music. Now, you have to remember, most artists make their income from touring. And touring yes. was at a dead halt. People were sitting yeah. at home. Plus, they all a lot of them had finished records uh -huh. that they didn't want to put out. When COVID hit, it hit in March of 20. Most people put out Correct. albums you know, around that time or early summer, and then they tour from the summer through the end of the year. Uh, so yeah, there were a lot of bands and artists that were sitting on albums that were not out yet. They were going to put them out, but they didn't want to put them out in COVID because they yeah. couldn't tour after they put them out. So I started speaking to all these artists about, hey, let's put your music out as an NFT. And people were just like, huh, what? And it like took a lot of convincing. I got turned down by everybody. Um, but I finally got one band to step up in December of 20, a band named Portugal The Man. And they stepped up and they were the first band to ever put music out on, an, on NFT and build a format around it and build a community in the blockchain space. It was a small release. Um, it got, actually got picked up by Rolling Stone and it was cool, but like, you know, didn't get the main, the big, big attention. But what yes, it did was it gave me a use case where now all these As people example, I've been speaking yes. to who were yes. saying, are you out of your mind? Like, shut up, you know, like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, yeah. look at this. This is incredible, blah, blah, blah. So at that point, I got the Kings of Leon to step up, and that was big. So when they stepped wow. up, we ended up doing the first ever NFT and blockchain ticket, 
which are lifetime front row tickets to the band. Like if you own one of these for life, you get a chauffeur and a SUV and front yeah. row and a VIP room for, for life. Um, and then we also did their album, which was sitting in the can, unable to come out. We put it out as NFT. And over the That's course of two weeks. That's all during COVID. That is all during COVID. During right? COVID. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Over two weeks, we sold two and a half million dollars worth of these NFTs. Um, uh-huh. And that was more than they had made off of their last five albums combined at at their record label. Unbelievable! So it was a pretty much success. Basically, as they say, it is a a light in the end of the tunnel. But in your case, there was no light. You created your own light it was in the hustle. end of the tunnel. Pure hustle, Bob. Like literally, you became just innovative. Like, you innovative. That's I mean, what you did. I, you just like I tell you, like I was literally, you know, spending my days talking to everyone in the U.S. Um, I'd spend my nights all night long talking to people in Asia because crypto and blockchain, which I was super into, was only mm. happening in Asia. No one in the US was thinking about it, talking about it. They couldn't care less. But in Asia, there were a lot of people that were super into it. So these became my people. Uh, so and then I like early morning, I'd be up trying to talk to people in Europe, but I was going 24 seven, which was fine because it was COVID. I wasn't leaving the house much. It was just like that time. But it was yeah. Instead of sitting back and saying, I'm going to do nothing, I literally work twice as hard. Amazing. Very inspiring, my friend. Very inspiring. Kudos to you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely, yes. Um, you know, uh, you know, the music business, which people don't know these, a lot of these stories, you know, behind the scenes, it, it has a lot of misconception. What's the, uh, I would say, a common misconception in the music business or in the music industry that you come across or you see? Well, there's a lot of them. You know, the interesting thing is that because of social media, um, there's not there's so much more transparency these days where all of these artists are literally broadcasting everything they do. Oh, I ate a sandwich. And, oh, I'm in the studio. And, oh, and obviously they're broadcasting the good, making it out like they're living these glorious lives, you know, on their yacht, on the plane, on this and that. Um, so there's a lot less misconception than there used to be. Plus people tell stories. Oh, I got ripped off by this record label or this promoter never paid me. And like these stories get out because it's really hard to do things negative to people and not, and it gets out immediately. People literally go on social media. They have these large followings and they just tell the world what just happened to them. So there's not nearly as many. The one thing I will say is that, um, you know, there is a misconception, I think, around how much money a lot of these artists might have um, because of the fact that, you know, you need to really have a career to start making a lot of money. Um, and there's a lot of artists that might have had a hit or two, but actually never made any money. You think they would have, but they never did. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. Um uh, this business, it's all about uh, collaboration. Uh, as I would say, one of the key elements in the music industry, everybody collaborates together. Uh, is there uh, a moment or a collaboration that really, that you could tell us a story about as someone that you work with and lift an impression or an impact on you through collaborating with somebody yeah, else? Yeah, and I've had, I've had a few. Um, you know, I'll tell you about two of them, um, and they both involve... Um, you know, mega iconic artist who passed away. Um, the first was with a rapper named XXX Tatacion, um, mm-hmm. who left this world way too early. And, you know, at Yellow Heart, we did an NFT release um, with his family, with his, with his mother, uh, with his manager, um, his yeah. attorney, great people. And 
working with them, I got brought into their universe and their family, and I'm still part of it. And I felt the power of Ja. That's what you know his name is, his uh, ex's name is, and the family. And it was really transformative for me. And the irony was was that I was familiar with X, but I didn't know him well. But at the time during COVID, my eight-year-old son would put on X's music in the house. And my wife and I would be like, huh, it's a little inappropriate for an eight-year-old, you know, just like very like, you know, the lyrics, just like not even like the explicits, but just like the topics that he's rapping about, you know. And suffice to say, it's funny how the world works. You know, a year later, I'm suddenly working with his mother and his estate. I'm putting out his stuff. And we got brought in like we're family. And now I feel so close to these people. It's pretty amazing. So that was just an incredible, um, you know, experience I had really working with these, with these guys. Wow. And, and the second one, you said there's two of them. The second one, yeah. The second one was uh, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. Um, yes. Where, you know, a little bit after COVID, I worked with his estate manager. Um, and we were really looking, you know, Jerry was the leader of the iconic Grateful Dead, you know. Um, yeah. And everyone knows him as on stage, you know making music that everyone loves and touring and selling out stadiums. But what people didn't realize was that Jerry spent just as much time making art as he did making music. He'd come off tour and he'd break out the paintbrushes and he'd make art. So when the NFT craze happened, the estate you know, did a deal with us and we started looking at what art could we put out. As we were searching through Jerry's art, I'd spend hours on Zooms uh, with the estate, and we'd literally go through every piece of art Jerry ever made. And there was about 600 yes. pieces he left behind. And we mm -hmm. were talking about it. And then one day, a guy named Mark Allen says, hey, by the way, I'm pretty sure he made some digital art too. And that's the whole essence of what this NFT art movement was. We were like, what? He's Correct. like, yeah, let me look into that. Comes back, and it turns out there's 21 pieces of digital art that jerry garcia made on a mac computer right before he died in fact wow. when jerry died he literally left his computer open and he was working on one of them and these kind of went to the wayside no one ever thought about them the computers went into a storage facility and that was it so we uncovered these pieces we ended up putting a sale up of them and then we ended up partnering with the rock and roll hall of fame and we did a big exhibit in cleveland of the art pieces, his guitars, the computer, and it ended up being one of the most traffic exhibits uh, last year at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But it was all kind of Mark being like having this, wait a second, I think there's digital art. Vis-a-vis, -vis, six months later, we're opening up an exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that was just like a pretty magical experience. You know, I have to say, Josh, I do a lot of interviews, but yours from the beginning to now, so far, I would say, very every story is very extremely inspiring every story that you told us thank you thank you yeah which is great um technology as we both know and everyone knows that significantly changed the landscape of the music industry and you know and my question is how advanced technology influenced your work in the music industry as a whole well we know about you know the company you started you know uh, yeah. so um, yeah, listen, I'm a big believer in technology. I'm probably too progressive. Um, I've watched as the music industry as a whole has been fairly slow to adopt to technology. Um, you know, Correct. what they what they find is, and I'm, I'm frankly, I'm dealing with it with Ticketmaster right now, 
where Ticketmaster has ha- coming off a banner year, best year in history. Um, you know, everyone went out after COVID and bought expensive concert tickets and, you know, went to as many live events as they could. Uh, mm-hmm. The company made a fortune. Um, and if it's not broken, why fix it? So, um, and that's kind of the way it works. Same thing's going on in recorded music with Spotify. It took 20 years to catch up. Now we figured it out. Much less staff, much less overhead. As much get, Let's get as much market share as we can with as few artists as we can. And now getting the next phase to adopt is going to unfortunately take something big to happen in that industry, both live and recorded. Um, mm. it's not, they're not jumping up saying, oh, yeah, let's use this new technology and move away from streaming on the, on the major DSPs. They're not. They're not jumping off the of Ticketmaster. Their, their platform is 40 years old and is broken as could be. It's terrible. It's held together by freaking duct tape. Uh, but are they moving off of it? No, because why should we? If the infrastructure is in place, people are used to trying to buy concert tickets and not getting them. They buy them on the secondary. Let's, why change anything? No one, no one's, no one's, we don't need to. So that's the interesting thing is that the technology is there, but it needs to actually get adopted. So you're saying the music industry really hasn't took any steps forward to adapt new ways of doing things because of technology. They still follow the same old say, if it's they, broken, if it's not broken, why fix it? Pretty much. They, they adopt slowly as they need to. Um, yeah. I'll give you an example in ticketing. Pre-COVID, nobody wanted to use digital tickets. It was all paper still, which I yeah. thought was insane. Right, I was yeah. in these meetings at Ticketmaster telling them they should be using facial technology. They thought I was insane. Okay, now post COVID, everyone got used to QR codes, um, yeah. and now suddenly the digital tickets a thing, and that's where like about ninety percent of tickets how they go now. But it took COVID for that to happen. Yes, I mean we all know COVID was the opening door for all digital transactions and digital way of yep. living and digital life. And yes. Yes. QR yes. code. Think about the QR code from a menu mm-hmm. to anything yeah. you do. Pre-COVID, yeah. QR codes were around forever, but no one would use them. Used it. Uh, yeah. Now they're everywhere we go in life. Is it to men- is it safe to mention the word AI? What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. I hear a lot of negative things. I don't think it's negative. In my opinion, it shouldn't be. But well, again, you know, people with still so, the old ways of doing business, this feel uh, is a big threat. I don't think it's a threat. But okay, so here's the thing. So think about it like this, okay? It could be negative where two computers, I heard a story actually yesterday about two computers that got so smart they developed their own language and were talking to each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that could be pretty scary, right? Where suddenly they think they're smarter than us and they just keep accelerating and there's nothing we could do about it. Um, Where it gets really interesting is it could really create efficiencies around so many things. It could create efficiencies in the studio. And now if you look at the new generation, look at the kids today, they're used to all this stuff. They're going to be used to computer-generated music. And that's what's going to end up happening, where the, the future stars, you'll still have your mega stars, your Taylor Swift. Oh, you, you mentioned your, a taboo word, uh, uh, <laughs> AI-generated music. And not for me, yeah. but yeah. a lot of people, you know, it's a, it's a taboo word. But it's, please, but it's I want to hear more about it. You had it's the guts to say it, so please, I want to hear more about it. So I could right now, I could go and pull the top 10, and I could plug them into AI and say, okay, make me 10 tracks like this that yeah. have a different bridge and, you know, really yeah. are a little shorter and maybe they're in a different key and enough that they're different, right? Um, and they're done. And they'll be done by the time we get done here, like instantly, boom. 
Then I go back yeah. and I say, well, this bridge is too short, make it 10 seconds longer. And then I get it to where I need it to go. It goes into my Pro Tools. And next thing you know, within a couple of hours, I have 10 songs that mimic the top 10. Um, you know, so it gets to a point where it's really interesting to make music. But then the other part of it is the super creative producers are going to go in and use this technology to create things that they never could create before. Yes. Use an AI to help them produce better music. Yes. Much better music. But better yes. is relative. So let me ask you, yes. like, to this day, there could be a three-chord song that's a hit across the board day and night. It happens every day, right? Yes. Simple, yes. great, catchy. Like, we all love it. We're all humming it. It's a mega hit. So that's not going to go away. You'll still have that person that just hits the guitar, piano, a DJ, whatever it might be, and they're going to write a great song. What you're going to start to see happen, though, is producers coming out with mega hits, songs that people love that were just produced in the studio without real musicians. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happened all the time with all the modules. I mean, you know, when when electronic music came in, pop music, you don't have a whole band. It's all I mean, it's all music through modules and the sounds oh, and all of this. I remember back in the early two thousands, people would be yeah. all upset. Oh, they used the drum machine on that track. That's garbage. And here we go. Yes, <laughs> yes, I mean, you know? yes. Um, so I used like, to walk into studios. I remember, and used to see stacks of all kind of old vinyl records. They used to sample and get inspired by it. Of course. You know? So now yes. those will be the roots of creating new songs. Make me a song so that sounds difference? like so this. If AI learned all of this Let's and helped it'll, produce it'll be yeah, that's it. Yes. It'll be better. Yes. So Absolutely. you know when I when I, so I have an eleven year old son, right? And when I look at the content that he consumes, yeah. he has no idea if it was recorded at Electric Lady Studios with engineers yeah. and all this, or if it was guy in some guy's basement, you know, wherever. He has no clue, nor does he care. So yeah. I just think this this is once again the way. Remember when Pro Tools came around and everyone suddenly was in the home studios and out of the big rooms? This is just going to be more tools that allow for talented people to make great content. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well said. Definitely well said. Uh, how do you stay updated, uh, uh, Josh? Uh, uh, innovative, or how do you get all your ideas and you know to keep going forward? You know, you I know. try to just you know be educated and I try to keep my mind clear, which is hard to do um yes. you know but that's the hardest part as i'm getting older it becomes more difficult yeah. um as a younger guy i had endless ideas and endless energy i still have a lot of energy but like you yes. know it's harder to come up with the ideas now um but you do what you can absolutely absolutely um anyways uh, advice to people who in the industry who wants to start or who just started in the industry you know as we both know this industry full of gatekeeping and everybody holds the key and they don't want to share anything with anybody like if you can give us some of the tips and challenges that they could you know kind of overcome and build their own unique path in the industry yeah you know i think the best thing to do um is to kind of know yourself and know mm -hmm. what you're capable of and you know, really try to go for it. But at the same time, in the early years, sit back and learn from great people. Surround yourself with smart, talented people who are also generous, aren't, you know, jealous or bitter and actually want to see you succeed. Those people are mm -hmm. hard to find, um, but they are out there. Um, yes. And then, you know, after that, my advice would be just go for it. Like, don't hold mm -hmm. back. Like, just go all in as hard as you can. Be an animal. Don't stop. And just, like, have... Like eye of the tiger, like you gotta go for it. <laughs> Believe in yourself. Yeah. Yes. Um, anything before we wrap up? Anything that you wanna you wanna plug in? You are working on upcoming exciting projects that you wanna tell us about? Tell our listeners, everybody. 
Uh, you know, nothing at the moment I'm, I, yeah. I want to talk about. Um, you know, once again, um, you know, I'm in a space that is got, kind of going through a traditional phase right now. Um, yeah. All Everything involved in what we do, even though it's music and entertainment based, got kind of looped into the greater NFT, crypto, blockchain stuff, which was highly demonized, particularly around crypto in the U.S. So uh -huh. we've been kind of, we went from about 120 miles an hour to now we're going 55. And we're doing really cool projects. You know, ticketing platform we've built out is revolutionary. It will completely change live as it gets adopted. I'm dealing with a very slow to adopt industry, although they're very aware of it, yet slow to mm -hmm. adopt. So hopefully we'll start to see more mainstream use of some of this technology, either from us or other people. And it's going to benefit Great. consumers. And that's what it's really all about. I love that. I love to hear uh, all the innovation, all the positivity because of technology, how fast are you evolving and how, how fast are you going forward? Even, you know, technology, definitely it's, you know, it, oh. to be used to our benefit and help us grow in the, yeah, in the, no, in the industry. Earlier, yes. It's that, yeah. you know, we built it and we built it, you know, over about five years or so, but now it's the yeah. adoption. And yes. now I'm watching as, as you said, the gatekeepers are sitting back yes. saying, this is brilliant. Well, do we really need to put it in place? Or are we going to make more money? Well, you know, and it's just kind of me now at other people's beck and call as to like, yeah. okay, are we going to scale this massively or not? And we're working yeah. on it, but it's taking time. Great. This is great. Well, I want to say thank you for joining us, Mar uh, Josh. And to uh, conclude today's episode with Soundbreakers, please make sure you follow us on social media and stay tuned for our next episode. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. This podcast is presented by Music Dash, world's first AI-powered independent distribution CMS. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share the Soundbreaker podcast. And if you are joining us on YouTube, please like this video and subscribe to the channel. Until next time.